So we are in Advent, the season of waiting. We are uh, focusing on the hope by looking at Isaiah chapter 11. And so each week we've been focusing on some aspect of our hope. And this hope is not just the hope looking forward to the baby in a manger that we obviously look back to, but it is also the hope that we as Christians continue to have as we wait for the the final consummation of the kingdom, the final uh, uh, coming of Christ where he sets all the promises of God in their final form, in their final glory. So we've been going through Advent focused on hope. Our first week, we looked at just Isaiah 11.1 1, about the stump of Jesse, and we saw that our God provides surprising hope, that even when we may feel like we have become a stump, that we have become diminished or defeated or despairing or, or even outright dead, that God is able to surprise by bringing a shoot from the stump, which all of the promises, all of the hope that uh, God provides the world is, is provided in, and, that's, and that shoot of Jesse is the Savior. Last week, we looked at Isaiah eleven two, 2, where we discovered that the hope that we have in Jesus is a hope that we can have confidently, because he bears the marks of the Holy Spirit. We see in the ministry of Jesus the fulfillment of the promise that he will bear the Spirit. And so as we survey all of history and say, who should we look for our hope? There is only one who has the fingerprint of the Spirit upon his ministry, and that is Jesus. And so we put our hope confidently in Jesus. This week, as we, as we move into the third week, we look at the joy that is inside of our hope. And the the title for the sermon today is Jubilant Hope. Basically, jubilant hope is is pulling from this idea in the Bible called the Jubilee. And it is reflecting upon the joy that is given to God's people when God's justice fully reigns. And so the promise in Isaiah 3 through 5 is that the Messiah who comes will be the Messiah who brings perfect justice. Do we need a Messiah to bring perfect justice into the world that we are in right now? The cry of of injustice is something I think is ravaging our world. There are many people who look like, uh, who are crying, we, we, have, we do not have the justice that we have been promised. We have, uh, we have people who are suffering economic injustice. We have racial injustices. We have uh, in, injustices from, um, from uh, political abuses. Just a, a, a couple months ago, the, the song Richmond North of Richmond, did anybody, have you heard of the, the, the song Richmond North of Richmond? It was a viral song uh, from a, a man in Virginia who was a working class man and, and he was just putting into song his anger at how the political system continues to, to fail to deliver the, 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 the land of the free, Right? And, and that's, that's one example, but, but we have so many people in our culture crying, things are not right, justice is not being done. The younger generation, the millennials and the Generation Z, justice is their number one concern. Justice is their number one concern because they have, have seen a, a world with haves and have-nots. And they, 
they want change. So there is a world that we live in that, that is crying for injustice. And that connects us very directly to the world that Isaiah was living in. Isaiah was, again, a prophet of the 8th century, and his uh, land was being ruled by progressively uh, weaker and more faithless leaders. The, the nation was becoming more and more compromised to the spirit of the age, more and more aligned with the nations around them. In fact, uh, Ahaz, the king that, that be, uh, is reigning when Isaiah begins his ministry, uh, famously makes an alliance with Assyria, uh, the evil empire, to try and, and preserve uh, some semblance of independence. But, but in making that compromise, uh, the, the hopes and the promises and the justice of the land suffered. So Isaiah chapter 5 describes the situation of, of Israel by using this uh, extended analogy of, of Israel being a vineyard planted by God and that the vineyard has gone rogue. It has rebelled against God. And, and when, when Isaiah interprets this um, this extended analogy, this extended metaphor, one of the things he says is, is in 5.8, he says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. What Isaiah is describing is a practice that had uh, begun in, in Israel where the wealthy and the rich had begun taking their wealth to buy up the land of the poor. And in taking up and buying the land of the poor, they were taking the homes of the poor and the, the place for the livelihood of the poor. And then they were uh, developing a system where all of the land was joined together by, by the rich and the powerful so that the, the poor and the disenfranchised, the weak and the meek, had no place. And so the, 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 the commandment in, the, in this um, uh, passage is that this is an act of evil. This is an act of injustice that is being perpetuated upon God's people, upon the poor in the land. I do not know why this is sliding so much, but it is. Do, do we feel anything similar? Do, do we feel the, 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 the powers that be not providing a fair opportunity for the people without power? How, how do we fix the, the inequalities, the injustices, the, the, the cries for things are not the way they should be? How, how do we fix that? We, we keep going through political candidates and political platforms and they both just move the dial a little bit this way or that way, but they don't actually bring a land that is truly just. We continue to see disparities. We continue to see the law uh, that was uh, uh, passed favoring one people and disfavoring another. What was, what was the Bible's answer? The Bible's answer to this, this situation of injustice actually was given to us in Leviticus 25. And Leviticus 25 is the, the passage where God gives the people the, the uh, year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was designed to reset 
all of the economic situation, all of the injustices that, were, uh, that had been perpetuated in the land by giving the poor back any land that they sold, by freeing any slaves who had been sold in the land so that they would then have freedom. This, land, this, this year of Jubilee was something that God gave to prevent the injustice of generational economic abuse upon the poor. And so the Jubilee is this picture in in God's word, in God's law, to bring about perfect justice, to finally give equality to all people, to finally give equity to all people, regardless of their political power or economic power or any other form that power may rest. There's only one problem. The year of Jubilee never happened. The year of Jubilee never happened. This great reset just never came to pass. And so we have situations like in the book of Isaiah where instead of of a land of jubilee, there is a land of, of people attaching their land to the next land and disenfranchising the poor even further. Instead of jubilee, there is growing injustice. That is why the words of Isaiah 11:3 3 through 5 are words of great hope, of jubilant hope, because the words in Isaiah 3 through 5 is Isaiah's promise that this long overlooked, long uh, neglected jubilee will come. The jubilee of, of perfect justice is coming, and it's coming with the Messiah. And so Advent is here. The main point, Advent, as we focus on Advent, gives us the confident hope of perfect justice. And how? It gives us that confident hope because the Messiah who judges the world perfectly has come. So if you have an ache for justice, then you have a yearning for the Messiah to reign. That is what I want us to see. As you seek and desire justice, Advent calls us to seek and desire the reign of Christ. It is the Messiah who judges perfectly. And as we go through this passage, we are going to see five characteristics of the Messiah's judgment that allows us to know that finally in the Messiah, there will no longer be a cry for justice because justice will be fulfilled. Let us go through this passage and look at these five characteristics of of the Messiah's judgment. First, we recognize that our Messiah judges with perfect reverence. Our Messiah judges with perfect reverence. Isaiah says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is, was, set, was mentioned in the verse just before where we are told that he has been anointed with the Spirit, that he, will, that he will have the faithfulness of perfect obedience to the fear of the Lord. Here Isaiah transitions with the phrase fear of the Lord to then describe the character and rule of our Messiah as being one who delights in the fear of the Lord. Now, the word delight, it's kind of a strange word, and it's caused a little bit of controversy among the, the uh, commentators on Isaiah chapter 11, because the word that Isaiah uses is a word that basically means smell. 
So if we were being very literal, it would be his, he smells the fear of the Lord. And so some people think that's just such a strange word, that's such a strange use of the word, that, that maybe there's some uh, corruption in the, the translation or some corruption in the passing down of Isaiah 11 through the centuries. But I think with a little bit of reflection, we can recognize that smell has been used uh, throughout the scriptures to describe great satisfaction. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, you'll read these words. When the Lord smelled, same word, the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So what this is describing, uh, Noah made a sacrifice, and the smell of that sacrifice came before the Lord, and that smell changed the, the, the Lord's a mindset towards sinful humanity and says, I will no longer flood the earth. So it was a satisfying, a pleasing aroma that was uh, driving the, the, the Lord in the decision that he makes. And so that same word smell is, is put here to say that the, the Messiah has this smell that is from the fear of the Lord. And it seems that, that what is being pulled in there is it is a smell that brings joy. It is a smell that brings a satisfaction. And I was trying to think, well, what, what kind of smell maybe uh, could you relate to? And I, I have to confess that one of the smells that motivates me, that delights me, that makes me happy is the smell of a baby's head, right? Uh, this is Henry. Uh, and his great-grandma and, uh, and his grandpa, but there's grandpa smelling the head of little baby Henry, right? Why? Because it's been over 30 years since grandpa got to smell the little head of a baby. But you never lose the desire of that smell once you've had that smell. You want to smell that little baby's head. That's why I'm sneaking all the babies uh, in, our, in our church to hold them a little bit every, every Sunday. That smell brings delight, right? It is a delight that draws us to babies, that wants to hold babies, that wants us to cradle and, 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 and cherish babies. It is, a, it is a smell that makes us happy and compels us, right? So when Isaiah says that, that the smell of the fear of the Lord is, is, is in the Messiah, they are, he is saying that it is the fear of the Lord that excites, that gives him joy, that makes him happy, that compels him in what he does. Christ's happiness is doing God's will. That's another way of stating the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to obey and please him. And so Christ's happiness, we are told, is in doing God's will. Listen to our Savior's words in John 15, verses 10 through 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You see, Jesus is saying, I abide in my Father by doing his commandments. 
And the doing of his commandments is the place where I find complete joy, the fullness of joy. And what I want you, my disciples, to have is that joy that comes through delighting in the fear of the Lord, through delighting in the obedience of God's commandments. When when Jesus says, my joy is complete in the obedience of God's commandment, he is saying that he is a Messiah marked by an uncompromising pursuit of God's will being done. Which means he is a Messiah who delights in righteousness. And he is a Messiah who despises unrighteousness. So if you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, there's this passage where a a leper visits Jesus in the wilderness. And we talked about how Mark relates that Jesus' response to seeing this leper was anger. And it was a bit confusing. Why is he angry at this situation? But we we discerned that his anger was towards the disease. His anger was towards the way that that disease had corrupted the very good way of the world. And so likewise, when we say that Jesus delights in righteousness and despises unrighteousness, we are saying that he is a Messiah who zealously seeks righteousness. He is a Messiah who never compromises with unrighteousness. He is steadfast, pursuing the aroma of God's righteousness so that it is his delight. So he judges with perfect reverence. That is his joy. The second characteristic that I want us to see in this passage is that he also judges with perfect Knowledge, with perfect knowledge. As we're told, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He is not going to be a judge who makes decisions based on appearances. When I, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, took a, a mission trip down to Haiti, we had a a field day that we put on for a bunch of orphan kids. And I was responsible for the jump rope station. And so the way it worked was all these kids came to the jump rope station, and whoever uh, was able to do the most jump ropes in, I think, a minute uh, was considered the winner. And so there was this group of kids, and they came up, and they all did it. And there was this one girl uh, who had a little bit of a disability, but she did the jump rope, and she was, she was excellent. She did a really good job at it. And it was my responsibility to count. And I lost count. I lost count. And all of the kids around uh, could tell. I wasn't sure what my eyes had seen. I wasn't sure. And so they pounced on my uncertainty. And they, they would not allow me to say, she did the most. And I still very much regret that. Because that was injustice. That was injustice that happened because I did not have perfect knowledge. I was fallible. 
And this girl who deserved to win did not win because I allowed what my eyes saw in these other people and their arguments to get in the way of what needed to be done. That's a, maybe a small picture of injustice. But we recognize that injustice happens in our world all of the time because some important fact is not shared. Some hidden email in corporate does not come out that explains that what was being done here was done in knowledge. And so we, we live with the, the harm of secondhand smoke for decades. And the danger of smoking for decades because the people who knew the injustice hid it. Right? But that is not something that it will foil the judgment of our Messiah. You see, his judgment does not depend upon what his eyes see or what his ears hear. His judgment is able to see through it all. His knowledge is never confused. His judgment is never based on appearances. It is impossible to deceive him. He is not spinnable. He doesn't sit down and listen to his preferred news network and said, well, now I'm persuaded the other way, right? He is not spinnable. He sees all the evidence. He sees all the actions, all the motives. He sees the thoughts. He sees the history. He sees every piece of evidence and knows their exact contribution to the situation. He is the one who fits all of the knowledge together to see the clear conclusion. Go back to the story in Mark chapter 2 where uh, the, the paralytic is being lowered through the, uh, the, the roof. And Jesus looked at the paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. And there are scribes in the room and the scribes don't say a word, but they say, who is this who is saying he can forgive sins? That's blasphemy. And then we come across this little phrase that we, that we see in the Gospels all the time, Mark 2.8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? We hide so much injustice in our hearts, right? But Jesus can see right into the heart. He can see exactly what is going on in the heart. Mark 2.8 and the numerous other passages that say Jesus responded to people's thoughts is a demonstration that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11.3. He is the Messiah who judges not by what he sees and not by what he hears. He judges rightly because he sees in the heart. And so his judgment is not weighed by externals. His judgment is not altered by presentation or by flash. I, I love the passage at the end of Mark chapter 12 where we have Jesus sitting at the temple complex 
And we, we, we pick up the story, Jesus watching the people giving money at the temple complex. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Do you see how Jesus does not judge by appearances? By appearances, all of the rich muckety-mucks are doing more. But Jesus sees the widow, and, and, and just the very fact that he saw the widow is amazing because you know she was the least noticeable person there. And yet he sees the widow, he hears the small tinks of her coins, and he knows her situation so that he can judge with perfect knowledge she is the generous heart. She is the one who is loving the Lord with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. He is not confused by the show. And so you have a Messiah who judges with perfect knowledge. He judges perfectly because his judgment brings all things to light. The third characteristic we see in this passage is that he judges with perfect impartiality. Perfect impartiality. Justice is, is rarely level. We, we have the picture of Lady Justice covering her eyes to say justice is blind. But we know that's aspirational. There's all sorts of examples of power taking advantage of the powerless through the law. Isaiah 1, 16 to 17 describes this happening in the nation of Israel. God calling Israel to repentance says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And what does ceasing to do evil mean? It means learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is the evil that was happening. Justice was not being sought. Oppression was not being corrected. Justice was not being given to the fatherless. And the widow's cause was not being pleaded for. Why? Because the people in Israel were okay with the way it was working for them. The powerful had become happy with the situation, either ignorant or intentionally taking advantage of the powerless. God's word says we don't simply uh, follow the law, 
we also seek to correct oppression. I've been watching um, for the last couple months uh, a few documentaries about Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers and the, um, uh, the, the Oxycontin crisis that, that, that has happened in our nation over the last couple decades. And it's, it's terrifying. The, the, this, this family who just wanted to make money lied about the science, lied to the doctors, and then through that heavy promotion and, and transparent lying and collusion with the FDA, were able to medicate millions of people who were desperately seeking relief for their pain who were in low economic situations, who simply had to trust their doctors, were being basically flooded with a medicine that they knew would addict them and that they then could not afford, a medicine that would put them in addiction, that would then drive them into poverty, that would then cause them to to seek out other ways that were cheaper to take care of their addiction. And then the social net had no way of bringing them back. Millions of people have been afflicted by this. And then innocent children and generations are going to be suffering because of the greed and the lies of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. This is the powerful taking advantage of the powerless in our own day. And that's one example. So what does is, what is Isaiah say will be true of the Messiah? Bring up the screen again, Riley. The Lord will enter in, uh, not yet, the one above that. Above that. <laughs> yeah. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. When when. God says that there will be equity. He is saying that for once in the Messiah, justice will be level. Justice will be fair. Money and stature and the best lawyer and the best connections will have no weight in the determination of justice. And so the poor and the meek, the widow and the orphan will be given their day in court. And they will be heard. And they will be decided for. Because the powerful will not be able to take advantage of the powerless. Now, The impartiality that the Messiah brings goes further than individual cases. The impartiality that is being promised here is that his judgment will not be just towards individual wrongs, but also to societal injustices. Now go down to Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3 tells us, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, Jesus is going to take into the courtroom the leaders, the people who uh, made the law and applied the law. 
He will right the wrongs in the justice system itself. Things like legal bias, corruption of the lawmakers, judicial miscarriages, all of it will be rectified in the reign of the Messiah. We can see this in in Jesus' earthly ministry. His impartiality comes out again if you look at the the passage in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. We, We looked at this a little bit last week. But here's the situation. The woman caught in adultery is thrown before Jesus' feet. And the law is very clear. If you're caught in adultery, you're supposed to be stoned. And so all of the leaders of Israel come and they say, what do you say should happen to this woman? And we we looked last week at how Jesus' wisdom got himself out of this terrible situation. But look also at Jesus applying justice impartially. I mean, the woman is here. She is is the definition of poor and meek. She has no legal representation. She only has accusers. She is there alone. She is not given an opportunity to make any defense. And look at the rulers of Israel. How are they handling the law? Are they handling the law blindly? No, they are selectively applying the law. Because I don't see the man in the picture. If she was truly caught in adultery, then there was a second person there. But he's being treated differently, or not at all. And and don't lose sight of the fact that the whole operation is, is a charade. It is an abuse of the law to get Jesus in a trap. They are not caring about justice. They are caring about trapping Jesus. We are told the intent of the the people is to catch Jesus. So this whole issue is a charade. The law is not being used to bring justice. The law is being used to help the powerful get rid of the threat. This This is corruption. And so what does Jesus do as the Messiah who judges impartially? He levels the ground and he starts writing in the sand. Again, we don't know what he wrote, but its effect was to kill the zeal in that crowd of accusers. Very likely, he listed all the sins he knew were in them worthy of the death penalty. But here is our Messiah judging impartially. He does not just take the will of the people. He does not just take the will of the powerful. He treats with equity. And because he treats with equity, the woman walks away with the words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is, this is the justice that we need. Fourth, he judges with perfect recompense. He judges with perfect recompense. Here, here, here's the problem with earthly justice. E- even when it's right, is it's always incomplete. You know this anytime your, your car gets wrecked. The insurance company, you know, is supposed to set you right. 
but usually they require you to accept something of quite a bit inferior to the car that you had before the wreck. And no one pays you for the amount of time that you don't have a car. So you're never set back, right? You're never brought back to 100%. It's never completely dealt with. What do we do with those grave injustices? What do we do with stories like Kevin Strickland, who last year was released from prison after serving a 42 years when it was found that he was innocent, that he was convicted on false grounds. How does that man get his 42 years back? How does justice ever really take that person and restore them? And I know that there are many people in here who have, who have experienced interpersonal wrongs or societal wrongs. Wrongs in your workplace, wrongs where the lie got treated as the truth and you got the blame. And every single one of us carries in our heart the wound of it can't be made right. This can't be fixed. All I have to do is grin and bear and go on. But that's not exactly justice. The Messiah judges with perfect recompense. As it says in verse 4 again, go up a slide. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. You see, the Messiah's judgment not only purges, it recompenses. The evildoers are removed and the result of that is that the land is rewarded to the just. All of these people who, who built house upon house and field upon field to exclude the poor, the Messiah strikes the land in judgment and says, that is not right. And they are removed. And the land is then freely given back to those whom it belonged to. So this is recompense. This is restoring What we are told in this passage, though, is even bigger than Israel. We are being told that the earth will be struck by the rod of his word and that the earth will experience the removal of the wicked. That is a picture of peace through perfect justice being established permanently. This is the jubilee that never ends. Does the Messiah bring peace that is established perfectly? Does he bring the jubilee that never ends? We go to the very last page of our Bible to, to read these most thrilling words. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words 
are trustworthy and true. That is a picture of perfect jubilee. That is a picture of recompense, of restoration, of all things that wickedness and injustice have robbed the creation of and have robbed you of being set right and restored. When we are told he will wipe away the tears from our cheeks, we know that he will know the pain, the suffering, the injustice that you have gone through. But when he wipes away the tear from our cheek, he is also saying, I wipe away the cause of the tears. I wipe away the need for the tears. Your cheeks will never cry again because I make all things new. And so, in the Messiah, we have the perfect recompense for all the injustice that has come. Do you yearn for that passage? Do you yearn for that day when the tears are wiped away to never come back again? Do you imagine? I mean, it's almost beyond imagining. I mean, how can this world become that? How can we get from a world of Kevin Strickland's to that world? That is where we go in the fifth characteristic. He judges with perfect integrity. Verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The image here is uh, that righteousness and faithfulness will be like, like, a, like a belt, uh, something that wraps tightly around him. And the, the commentators split a bit on uh, how this image is actually meant to be um, visualized. One way that we can look at it is that this is, this is the loincloth belt, and so it is the closest layer. It is right against his skin. It is, it is the inmost part of the, of the robes of the Messiah. Others look at it as a belt, and the function of a belt is that it is the thing that, that pulls and holds everything together, right? So whether we treat it as the inmost layer or the thing that holds everything together, we are being told that our Messiah is, is defined by righteousness and faithfulness. That the thing that is closest to him is righteousness. That the thing that holds all the things that he does together is righteousness. He judges righteously, and this is so important, he judges righteously because he himself is righteous. There is no hypocrisy in the Messiah. There is no shadow. There is no secret. There is no sin. The Messiah is a man who rules with perfect integrity. What you see is what you get. What his words say is what the man 
is. He has perfect integrity. In the book of Revelation, we are told his name is faithful and true. Because that's his character. And so he is the one with perfect integrity who rules righteously because he alone is righteous. And that brings us to this startling reality. The Messiah is the only one who can stand under his judgment. The only one who is righteous enough to be judged by the Messiah is the Messiah. The only one who can stand righteous under the perfect judgment of God is Christ. And so at this point, we have to recognize a tension. Do you, do you have a tension in your heart? I mean, you yearn for the world where justice is perfect. But you also Fear the judgment on yourself. You want a world of perfect justice, but as you consider an impartial, perfectly knowing judgment from the Lord who makes no mistakes and judges with perfect reverence and integrity, you have to recognize he's going to see all of you. And you're not going to be innocent. What will happen when the all-knowing, all-righteous, impartial judge reviews your case? You see, if you're honest with yourself, when the rod of judgment comes you will be struck down. The rod of judgment will strike everyone down. So what hope? What hope do we have in the judgment? Christmas. Christmas is the hope for the judgment. Listen, to what we said, it, we read it on the back of our bulletin. Matthew 1.21 tells us that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You see, Christmas is the good news that before Jesus comes to judge, he came to save. Before Jesus comes to judge, he came to save. The one who has all integrity, all righteousness, came to live in our midst. Not to judge us, but to save us. Not to condemn us for our unrighteousness, but to give us his righteousness. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21... For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the good news of Christmas. The one who has the perfect integrity, the perfect judgment, the only one who can stand under the righteous judgment of God, instead stood under our judgment to receive the full penalty of our sins so that they would be paid in full. And after paying them in full, he gifts us the righteousness that he has that alone stands under the judgment. This is the great exchange. When we put our faith in Christ, we become the one who has perfect reverence, who has perfect integrity. We have in Christ all that makes Christ righteous in us. So then who will be saved? Who will be saved? It's right up there in verse 4. Isaiah says that the poor and the meek will be saved. Have you heard the words poor and meek spoken by Jesus? What does he say? He says that the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the good news is good news for the poor in spirit and the meek. That is, the good news of Jesus is for those who are all humble and contrite, who recognize that they cannot save themselves, who recognize that they do not have the righteousness that will stand, who recognize that they are sinful and will come up short. And in recognizing that, the poor and the meek seek mercy. Beloved, what gives you more joy than the news that your sins are forgiven? Have you received that pronouncement? It is only given to those who come to the judge for mercy. But those who come to the judge for mercy are promised they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice this Advent. Jesus has brought eternal jubilee to all who receive his salvation. Amen?